1: wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No,
0: don't. Help me. Help. Help. Good morning, good morning. Welcome to the Ward Scott Files here in the Piney Woods of North Central Florida, which is God's country. As you know, inside the Warhol Manly Command Studio, inside the Melbourne Wall, Yes, Melton Law, with 50 years of experience in their studio here with our command center. Melton Law is the only official law firm partner of the Florida Gateners. Uh, Melton Law won't back down. We're protected 24-7, 365 by crime prevention. You can worry less with crime prevention security systems guarding your assets, yourself, your dogs, your family, your cattle, whatever, you name it. Crime prevention can do it. And, of course, Maurice T. McDaniel, our High Springs attorney who sponsors our mugshots, which get 45,000 hits a month. As you want to know who the guy is next door who had the gun illegally, who held up the bank, doesn't matter whether you got gun ban on him or not. It don't apply to him. Have you figured that out yet? Well, here we are in the Ward Scott Files, and it is the end of the month. While we're racing along through this uh, universe, whatever it might be with black holes and potholes and everything all over the place. So uh, we got a great show lined up today. Every once in a while, we try to talk about the medical profession. And we've had several physicians on our show from time to time who've given us different takes on what might be the situation with it right now, much of which is uh, increasingly has government intervention, as you know, for probably the worst. But we have a whole different array of guests who come on the show from different medical profession roles. Our uh, uh, guest today, Dr. Steve Reed, is a uh, good friend of mine goes way, way back and has been uh, known here locally in our community for quite some time as a neurosurgeon, has retired, and has really taken up several causes that relate to the medical profession, some of which you may be familiar with, some of them you may not be familiar with, but uh, certainly you'll be able to face-check with me as I watch the questions here come in. Any question you have, we do not have our uh, open line on, although at the bottom of the hour, if we feel like we need the open line, we'll open up the phone line. So uh, good morning to all you all who support the show. Uh, Welcome for those who don't Nate to the show and of course who sponsor the show. Patronize our sponsors, On the Spot Cleaners, uh, Shoot GTR, which is our gun range. It's uh, a great safe place to be and we'll be talking about that a lot in the near few days, as I'm sure you know. Um, Dr. Steve Reed is um, casually attired today, but never casually... Uh, at rest mentally. I, I don't know of a man with a more active mind than my good friend Steve. Of course, to be a neurosurgeon is no light duty uh, of the intellect. So, uh,
1: Steve, <laughs> may I call you Steve, sir? Uh, of, of course, Ward. <laughs> Please do. And, and thank you so much for you know, this opportunity to be on your show today.
0: Well, you know, you've been, let's start off with you. You started off, you told me one time you uh, worked in a, as, as a kid and there was no hospital administrator I remember (laughs) we've sure come a long way since then, haven't we?
1: Oh, yes, we have. Uh, And I'm not sure we've come in the right direction.
0: So as a young man, you did what? You worked around the hospital. Was that what you did? And you became interested in the profession?
1: Uh, When I was in high school, I worked as a ward clerk in a small hospital down in South Florida that was owned by a physician. Uh, And we had no such thing as a hospital administrator. At that time, none were were needed. and interestingly, uh, things have changed a lot uh, since that time, which was, uh, I hate to say, close to 50 years ago. Uh, but uh, currently, only about 255 hospitals in all of the country have physicians as their chief administrators, and there are close to 7,000 other hospitals that uh, have Professional administrators uh, that do not have a medical background. There have been studies that have shown that quality indicators are much better in the hospitals that are run by physician administrators. So uh, we basically have people whose primary goal, as it should be, is to make money for their corporation running the show. But because they are not doctors for the most part, and because they're the, the traditional commitment to patients first that doctors have has, has been superseded by the profit motive for corporations.
0: Well, you know, we have a joke in the education world that uh, we take bad teachers and make it administrators. I hope <laughs> <laughs> I hope that's not the case with the, with the doctor administrators, but that's pretty much the truth in education. Uh, we take them upstairs and get them out of our hair and get them out of the classroom where they really can do some damage. <laughs> <laughs> good, good, move.
1: <laughs> good move.
0: So uh, yeah, it has certainly changed. And now not only do we have a, a professional administrator, we have a corporation of administrators. Can you talk a little bit? I'm just sort of launching around here on all the subjects I know you're well-versed on. But since we're talking about the administration of healthcare, maybe we can start there.
1: Well, um, you know, I have a great deal of respect for administrators. uh, And and let me just contrast physicians and administrators in terms of what their jobs entail. Uh, Doctors, for the most part, uh, probably can be more certain about things than administrators can be. You know, in, in a situation where a patient may present with a complex picture, the doctor usually has options of, you know, let's get some more tests. Let's spend more time on a physical exam or history. Uh, Let's see if we can go to the books and find out what might be going on here. Has anybody else seen anything like this before? And so uh, generally uh, doctors have a a reasonable time window (coughs) in real urgent emergencies to uh, collect and integrate the information they need to, to make the proper decision uh, administrators on the other hand many times are dealing with very limited information primarily because their competitors do not want them to be informed and they often have to make quite momentous decisions you know involving uh, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars based on very little information uh, plus they have to be on top of all the changes in the regulatory environment uh, that blows like the wind and from one direction to the next uh, while hurting all of the cats within this vast system that they're, they're supervising. So I have a great deal of respect for what they do. Uh, but their, uh, their incentives are not really aligned with those of the doctor and the patient.
0: Well, how do they work counter then and get anything done? This is what I keep hearing. I, I guess this, this, this boils down to, um, uh,
1: Marginal hospital attention? How does that work, Steve? Well, I'm not sure I understand the question. Well, how do you how does it
0: how does it how does it get spread thin? Where is I as a patient when I notice this?
1: Oh, you probably notice it the minute you try to check in. Uh it's likely you'll have to wait in some kind of a line somewhere because there may not be uh enough people uh in the admissions office to to deal with you quickly. Uh, and, and, and then uh, you'll probably have to present the same information over and over again to different people uh, during the process uh, because the communications within the system itself are not as sufficient as they probably should be. Uh, then when you're involved in, in, in the system, once you're in the door, uh, you're probably going to be initially processed by people with minimal training. He uh, may get a medical assistant or a, a nurse's aide or someone like that, that uh, does the initial interview. And, uh, you know, we have a real shortage of physicians in this country now, and it's it's getting much worse over time. Uh, in fact, Florida is one of the States that has is forecast for having one of the, the uh, least amount of growth in the, in the physician population relative to the general population. So, uh, That means that doctors are a scarce resource and their time is uh, very precious. And so 10, 20, 30 years ago, you would typically sit down with a doctor and talk about your family and your hobbies and, you know, have a nice chat. And he would get to know you and know more about your quality of life, your lifestyle, your resources. Uh, And now you're lucky to get 17 minutes with the doctor. What you don't see behind the scene is that for every minute that that doctor spends with you, he's spending another two minutes with the uh, electronic medical record. So basically, his encounter with you is, is going to be three times as long for him as it is for you because he's spending twice as much time taking care of your medical record as he is spending taking care of you.
0: How is this slack taken up? If it is, I've never felt as a, as as a layman,
1: lay person, I guess,
0: that it really is adequately taken up. Um, many people don't ever see a doctor even now; they see the nurse practitioner, or they uh, see um, uh, what is the other term um, 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 for the physician's assistant. You know, and how does that? I, I I suspect you know that's not that's not seeing the doctor. Let's put it that way.
1: That, that, that's that's right. Now, uh, the 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 term that we use in the in the industry is physician extender. Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
0: physician extender. I haven't oh. heard that one before.
1: But that's that's the uh, that's the term that, that's used, uh, and uh, that's essentially the, the function of those those people is to, to try to allow that doctor to be spread a bit more thin. Yeah. Now. You know, uh, most of the time that people go to the doctor, it's for something common. There's an old saying in medicine, when you hear hoofbeats, you know, you should think of horses before you think of zebras. And uh, every now and then you're going to need somebody that's seen the zebra before. uh, But most of the time, if you hear the hoofbeats, it's going to be a horse. So uh, most of the time, a physician's assistant or a a nurse practitioner will do a, a great job for you. They'll they'll make a good diagnosis. They'll make the appropriate communications with the doctor if they're not certain about themselves, uh, and you'll get good care. But you're still not seeing a doctor. You're not getting the experience of that doctor's extensive training. What you're getting is what I refer to as the Walmartization of healthcare. You're you're getting something that is designed to be extremely efficient. It's going to make a profit. It's going to maximally utilize the available resources. Uh, and, uh, but you're not going to get the top quality that you might otherwise get.
0: Has it been come, you know, a lost art now, the uh, so-called gatekeeper, the internal medicine guy, um, they seem to be fewer and fewer, uh, less and less of them. I, I, I think that the old-timey guys have found it to be not to their liking the way it's organized now. It's just my anecdotal reaction. I don't know if you have feedback on that.
1: Uh, Well, those guys are the are the front line and uh, the specialists really appreciate them because they are like the net that catches our business. Uh, Very few people decide that, uh, oh, I think I'm going to go see a brain surgeon today. You know, usually they say, I I think I have a headache. You know, maybe I'll talk to the doctor and go see the doctor. And most of the time, it's just a tension headache and they're great. Uh, But the primary care doctors, the family care doctors, general practitioners and so forth uh, are out there uh, and they face pretty much the same level of medical legal liability as a specialist would. So if a primary care doctor uh say for example uh fails to make a diagnosis of a particular cancer uh then he can be sued the same way an oncologist could for that for that error and so uh they're exposed to a vast amount of, of medical liability uh just in terms of their daily encounters uh, But you're right. We're 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 we have a shortage of primary care physicians, uh, and uh, one of the reasons is that office physicians are so burdened by their electronic medical records uh, and so forth that they uh, typically spend uh, at least two additional hours outside of the office every day entering things into the electronic medical record uh, that. Uh, adds to that two-thirds ratio that I mentioned earlier in terms of how much attention your medical record gets compared to how much you get. So these guys, uh, literally, there was a study recently that looked at the amount of time that is spent by office doctors documenting things in the electronic medical record, and it literally came out to 125 million hours okay, uh, that, that are wasted this way. You know, I mean, it's, they're not technically wasted because somebody needs all that information, but that's, that's time that's not being spent on you directly.
0: Talking to Dr. Steve Reed here, who is a longtime friend of mine, a retired neurosurgeon. And uh, as a world and wealth of uh, information that you might want to just ask some questions about here, I'm looking at FaceChat here. Uh, we may open up a phone line at the bottom and see if anybody wants to call in and talk with Steve. Um, you know, you, you, you um, mentioned the, the, this, all this data. Is that a result of, um, I don't I want to say this tactfully, Steve, you can believe I can be tactful. Um, the lawyer in the room, um, you know, is that, does that really increase the burden of the position by the lawyer working, if you will, over the malpractice?
1: Uh, well, there there are really uh, I think two factors that confound the efficient delivery of of, of medicine today. Uh, one is the medical legal environment uh, where there is a lot of time spending spent on documentation uh, in anticipation of possible lawsuits in the future. So if you look at a typical doctor's note from 40 years ago, it's very efficient. It, it, it lists what did the patient tell me, what was, the, what was their complaint, what was their history, uh, what were the objective facts that I considered in forming a diagnosis, what did I conclude, and what is my plan? Uh, it was a, called a SOAP note. It was a subjective, objective assessment and plan. Uh, and they're quite efficient. And one doctor could very quickly look at another doctor's note and understand uh, what that presentation was like, what that doctor was thinking, and why he did what he did. Now, because of the medical litigation climate, notes had to become more defensive. So not only did the doctor have to list what he did think was the main problem, but he has to list a whole bunch of other problems to prove that he considered them. Uh, and not only does he have to list the tests that he, he chose to take, but he has to document why he didn't order other tests that might later have been uh, picked up by uh, a plaintiff's attorney uh, in, a, in a litigation. So we get this massive bloating of, of the note uh, as a result of uh, this input from the medical legal system. And then as if to add insult to injury to that, uh, the the methods whereby doctors get compensated for their work uh, involve what are called DRG codes. And uh, so the doctor, when he submits a a bill, has to list these diagnostic-related group codes uh, for that encounter. uh, And then uh, someone somewhere in Medicare or Medicaid or at the insurance company is gonna look through those codes and make sure that they justify the the billing that the doctor submitted. And so uh, just to get paid now, the doctor has to go and and list all these extra things. And that adds to chart bloat because the evidence has to be in the chart justifying the listing of that code on the bill. So what we end up with now is when you go into a hospital or a doctor's office, you might have a, go and to have a wart removed or some, some very minor uh, procedure, and you'll find you're going to come out with a 10-page report because <laughs> uh, gonna, there's going to be so much useless, extraneous information in there that has nothing to do with the reason why you were really there. And uh, that creates kind of like the fog of war in medicine. Because now, instead of efficiently transferring the the relevant information from one healthcare professional to the other, the receiving healthcare physician or, or person has to extract the useful information from all that other useless information <laughs> that, that's, that's there just to satisfy you know the medical legal. Uh, climate and the, the bureaucratic uh, medical state. So uh, that's where, where we are now. We're extremely good at documenting things, uh, but uh, you know, patient care may be suffering to some extent.
0: Well, we have a practical joke a longtime fan of the show here who was involved with the nuclear subworld, the nuclear power world. He says that they're saying in the nuclear power world was when the weight of the paper equal the weight of the job, then the job was done.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for that. But I'm going to use that one in the future. <laughs> I'm stealing that. That's great.
0: Yeah, that great one. The weight of the paper equals the weight of the job, and the job is done. <laughs> we have a question here from a good fan. Um, of course, this is going to come up, uh, Steve, and that is the Affordable Care Act. How is that? Is it affected this paperwork? And uh, you know, any comments on that? Uh,
1: please, sir. Uh, well, I wish I had a graphic to show you here of, of a chart, an organizational chart of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, it would completely blow your mind how complex it is, how many layers there are, uh, the demands that it makes, uh, the uh, time frames over which it was implemented. Uh, you know, it's clear that there are people who benefited from Having that, that may have had limited access to healthcare before its implementation, uh, but it, it did uh, contribute greatly to a lot of inefficiencies in healthcare.
0: And that's because it just required what so many layers of government paperwork to get paid as a doctor.
1: Most, most practices, most groups, most hospitals literally had to hire many, many, many more administrative people to be able to be in compliance with the demands of the ACA. So it, it ultimately is requiring more expenditures for health care that are going to aspects of healthcare that have nothing to do with actually taking care of patients.
0: Oh, well, now I see the industry. It grew up now called medical manager and these other things where Someone just comes in as a third party and uh, says, let me take this off your hands, do it for a small fee each month, right? And they become the quote-unquote manager of the doctors. Um, I'm sure that has grown up as an industry quite
1: considerably. Well, managed care uh, raises the question of who's to be the manager and who's to provide the care. And that's uh, part of the problem is that the management of management care is directed at saving the payer money. And, uh, in that case, uh, <coughs> doctors are incentivized to not order tests. They're incentivized to see as many patients as possible to create assembly lines, basically, uh, to, uh, try to get enough compensation that they can pay for these additional personnel that they need to meet the regulatory requirements. So it's kind of like a treadmill that's going faster and faster uh, that the doctors find themselves on. And uh, this raises uh, issues of uh, incentives that are not aligned, obviously. And Uh, One of the problems is that the the doctors find themselves doing things that they recognize are cutting corners or are shortcuts or that may not be absolutely in the patient's best interest but are necessary to get through the system. And and, and that creates a condition called moral injury, wherein the doctor uh, feels he's compelled to do something that is not consistent with with his personal morality. It's, it's one of the conditions that is contributing to the epidemic of physician suicides in the country.
0: I know that you're very interested in that subject. I wanna get into that a little bit after the bottom of the hour break, uh, because obviously everything you're saying has led to a lot of, um, well, uh, reaction among people who spend so much time training to be a doctor and find themselves frustrated. Uh, at being able to use that training. Uh, as, a, as a lay person, again, I suspect that's really kind of one of the prices we're paying. Um, as we try to distribute this healthcare thinner and thinner, uh, the quality gets thinner and thinner, and the cost goes up. It's um, certainly, we've interviewed people on this show from the Canadian system, and they don't want that system, those in Canada. We've interviewed physicians from Canada who come here to get their medical work done because they can't stand that one. There, we've interviewed them from Britain. They come here because any of the socialized countries they come here if they can because they don't want to be uh, treated in their own system. Um, these are the physicians who've worked in that system. So, um, to what extent do you see a social? I'm going to invent a term here for better or worser, as we say, socialist creep into the medical world uh does it describe anything that's going on there maybe
1: oh i think that's a, a great term you know if you're going to make a neologism i think that's a, a a good one we'll make it one word socialist street <laughs> uh, and uh yeah i mean we're seeing that every day and uh, that's one of the reasons that uh we're seeing kind of a cottage industry spring up of uh concierge practices where doctors uh, try to offer their patients an alternative that, to that system, you know, where the, you come in and uh, sort of like the old-fashioned model. You, you talk to your doctor, you, know, you negotiate your fee with him. Uh, if, he, if he knows you well, he, if he knows that you're a, a, a rich banker, he might charge you more than he charges the guy that he knows is the auto mechanic. You know? And that's okay in that system. You know, you're not committing a crime. You're merely allowing price discovery in a free market. Uh, whereas under the, the socialist system, you know, uh, the, the people with the least information about the, the, the families, the patients individually, their, their uh, circumferential circumstances uh, are making the decisions. So, what we have is, anytime you have a central planning of an economy, you have a tremendous loss of information that uh occurs normally at the level of individual exchanges so uh that in itself introduces great inefficiency into the system well you've
0: worked within both systems too maybe we just before we take a break here i know you work with the va you you're chief over there i believe and and you've also worked in um uh, uh you know the hospital corporations if you will how do the two stack up is it uh comparable care or is it more, broad, how's that, you know, I don't, if you can comment on that, Steve.
1: Well, I've kind of run the, the, the gamut. Uh, I started uh, at the university after I finished my training and uh, I worked uh, as a faculty member at uh, the University of Florida Department of Neurosurgery. And I, I trained uh, a generation of, uh, of new neurosurgeons and, uh, during that time, I uh, also uh, had an appointment at the VA hospital where I was the chief of uh, neurosurgery, uh, and uh, that was a, a very enjoyable five years of my life from uh, 1985 to 1990. Uh, that, that system uh, worked, uh, worked quite well. It, the, the VA system was well-designed, uh, and uh, the primary advantage at that time that we had with that system was that the doctors really had a lot of input. And uh, the system was fairly responsive. You know, if the doctor said, I need this to do what I need to do for my patients. uh, The government was pretty responsive and uh, usually uh, was able to provide uh, for that. And also back in those days, uh, it was quite interesting in medical education. uh, I remember one time uh, when I was in medical school, a resident said, well, what do you think that if we do this, what do you think is going to happen to the patient's sodium? I said, well, I don't know. And he said, well, let's order some labs and see. And back then in medical education, uh, one of the indications for ordering a patient's lab was your own curiosity as, as a medical student or a doctor. You know, uh, and, the, the, you know, of course, that was not really efficient in terms of, you know, the, that patient's particular bill, but it was a, a very good educational uh, thing, and uh, we uh, we got through it fine. The system could afford it. So, uh, anyway, a- after that five-year period uh, in academics, I went into solo private practice, and uh, that was was very interesting because I had to do the administrative aspects for the office. I, uh, was, uh, looking for good people. I found good people that could help me and work with me and train me. And, uh, we negotiated individually with insurance companies. Uh, and we, uh, ran the system quite well, but then we started to run into, uh, the kind of bureaucratic bloat that we uh, have seen it, uh, come along. And uh, it became time to circle the wagons. There was uh, I was spending more and more time on identifying and responding to various regulations, trying to anticipate uh, the changes that were coming. And uh, it was really biting into what I enjoyed the most about Uh, practice, which was working directly with with human beings. So at that point, I basically said, okay, it's time to circle the wagons. I don't have much choice here. And I I joined a uh, physician-owned multi-specialty practice uh, that was professionally managed. uh, And uh, that was where I played out the rest of my my career. Uh, And in terms of allowing me to continue to practice medicine and focus most of my attention on the patients, it was a good move. Uh, but I, I did not have the level of control that I had uh, in my private practice. So uh, when it came to getting appropriate resources allocated and things, it usually was an uphill battle. So that—that's kind of uh, the, the the impact that I have seen uh, as, as a result of this. Uh, kind of socialization of, of medicine that we're, that we're, we're seeing. Uh, I don't know where we're going with it ultimately. I suspect what we're going to end up with is uh, a, a, a binary system where most of the population is, is captured into the, this, the socialist model, and those that can afford it will will be in, in a concierge model.
0: Interesting. We're talking to Dr. Steve Reed. We're going to take a break at the bottom. We've got a couple uh, questions stacking up here. I'm sure one of them you're very familiar with. We have a, a viewer who has an immune, ther- immune therapy infusion every six weeks. It's billed out at $51,000 for treatment. He wonders how in the world, you know, who pays for that and how, you know, what's collected and all that. And then when we get back, of course, I want to get into some of the things that you've been interested in and been working on now that you're retired That of a uh, chief concern for you. I don't know about, um, um, ask Evan about our phone line, if we need it open, um, so we, we'll open up the phone line, if that's okay with you, Steve, we may get a call get well. And uh, we'll open that up after the break. So this is the Ward Scott Files with Dr. Steve Reed, retired neurosurgeon, fascinating discussion, uh, watching face chat. we'll open up the phone lines afterwards and we'll listen to some more presentations that are on our guest mind today. Be right back on the Ward Scott Files. This is Ward Scott, And I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files Premium Sponsors are, Crime Prevention Security Systems, Large Enough to Serve You, Small Enough to Care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files Gold Sponsors are, Maurice T. McDaniel, Shoot GTR, On The Spot Dry Cleaners, r construction and style cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.awardscottfiles.com and click on the advertise here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Wardscott Files. And remember, if you like the show, Thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us.
1: What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. (laughs) You can't handle the truth. All bees poop. A warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes.
0: Oh, my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy.
1: Can we touch him? No, don't.
0: Help me. Help. Help. and
1: cornell known as the thin skinned water boy and cornell known as mini mike and cornell wears elevator shoes can cornell he just wants to be like
0: Welcome back the Ward Scott Files, Professor Ward Scott here in the Warthog Manly Command Center inside the Melton Law Studio. We've got a great guest today, uh, Dr. Steve Reeve, retired neurosurgeon uh, with many, many years of experience in all sorts of facets of the profession. And uh, we're going to uh, take up some interest that he's been working on in a moment, try to answer one last question here. And we'll also have the phone line open in case you want to call with a question. The production will put you in the, uh, in the holding room and we'll work you in. Uh, basically, we were talking about the uh, Steve, the tremendous cost of cancer treatment. Um, does anybody actually pay that bill? How does that work? You know.
1: Well, there are uh, there's a big difference between expenses and and costs uh, in in healthcare. And anybody who's had a bill from their hospital and seen that they got ch- charged two or three dollars for an aspirin pill uh, will understand that. So. Uh, what happens within healthcare systems, hospitals and so forth is a, a massive kind of reallocation of, uh, of funds and areas that are kind of lost leaders in hospitals are some of those big, very expensive treatments uh, that uh, many times they understand that they're probably never really going to get paid for. So they make up for it by charging more for other things. Uh, bottom line is we all end up paying for it. Uh, If the healthcare is delivered through the government, we're going to be paying higher taxes uh, to pay for that. Uh, If it's private insurance, uh, we're going to be paying uh, private insurance for that. Uh, But just as um, businesses have an expectation that there's going to be theft, that there's going to be shoplifting, Hospitals have an expectation that they're going to be treating a lot of patients who are never going to pay them. And so it's all baked into the system.
0: Well, 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 that's a good uh, kind of analysis there that shoplifting is built into the expense of the product. Somebody pays for it. Talking with Steve Reed here, our good friend here, who's been uh, in private practice, a VA doctor, a neurosurgeon, highly trained, highly skilled some of the things that you've become interested in, you've shared with me, maybe We can get into now, Steve. That have been, I don't. I wouldn't want to say um, a hobby, but something drew you to be interested in it. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about that. And if we need help from production on screen sharing, we can do so.
1: Okay, thank you. Uh, yeah, I'd like to just just point out a couple of things that uh, have happened in our country. Uh, I have an interest in the prevention of physician suicide. Uh, I have personally known seven physicians over the course of my career who have taken their own lives. Uh, and I think every doctor at some point in their career will at least have a passing thought of that as an option because the, the demands of the practices uh, are uh, incredible. As most people would have no idea how uh, demanding Uh, and psychologically damaging medical training and day-to-day practice can be. Uh, I also uh, have a very close uh, comprehension of suicide because I lost my father uh, to suicide. Uh, He was not a physician, uh, but as a family member that has uh, survived something like that, uh, I have a really good appreciation for the terrible impact that it can have on many people. Now, in our, our country, about 400 doctors take their lives each year. And that translates to about a million patients that lose their doctor every year to suicide. And if we look at the, the, the problem overall, it's a lot worse for doctors than for many other specialties or professions. Uh, About 40 out of every 100,000 doctors kill themselves per year. And that's worse than veterans and military. It's worse than prisoners. It's way worse than the general public. Uh, Male doctors tend to kill themselves at about one and a half times the rate of the general public. And female doctors are about two and a half. So that means that if you pick an average waiting room or, or exam room, just picture a doctor sitting in a room with a patient talking to that person, on the average, that doctor is twice as likely uh, to kill him or herself as is that patient. Uh, suicide is the second leading cause of death for young doctors in the 24 to 34-year-old age group followed, preceded only by uh, accidents. So it's it's a really serious issue. So, you know, w- what are the roots of this? Most people, when they decide to become a physician is sort of they feel it's in their dna it's what they want to do it's built into who they are who they see themselves as being they really want to take on the mission of relieving human pain and suffering and to try to save people's lives but then something happens along their career path they go to medical school they go to residency they're many times exposed to tremendous horrors and abuse. A, a typical emergency room physician will see far more trauma than a, a typical soldier. Uh, it's, uh, it can be a very horrific thing that can leave lasting psychological scars, uh, very much akin to post-traumatic stress syndrome. Ultimately, the goal is to be able to integrate these experiences and to accommodate them and to move on then to become a healer, a physician, and to be able to take care of, of patients. Uh, so that's, that's the general nature of, of the problem that, that we're up against. Now, the, I think the, the major cause that leads to physician burnout and uh, ultimately to physician suicide is a concept called learned helplessness uh learned helplessness is something that was uh discovered by uh a fellow named uh marty seligman who uh was out of the university of uh pennsylvania and uh Dr. Seligman did an experiment that was really quite interesting. He set up a situation that we might have a little difficulty getting through the uh, institutional review boards and things today, but maybe not too much, (laughs) because it's not bad. But what he he would do is he would uh, take dogs and he would put them in a little box like we see here where uh, there's a speaker and a, a, a light. And a uh, a floor that can deliver a shock to the dog, and what he would do is he would flash the light, ring, uh, make uh, make a tone on the speaker, and electrify the floor on one side of the chamber, and the dogs then would jump over the uh, barrier into the safe side to escape the shock. Uh, so he that that's the basic system that he set up. Uh, but then what he would do is he uh, would take uh, a, 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 control, a, a group of a, roughly half the dogs and no matter which chamber they're in deliver the shock anyway. So the light would flash uh, the dog would try to escape to the next chamber and it still would get a foot shock. So uh, what would happen after just a few episodes of that type of training uh, the light would flash the speaker would come on and the dog would just lay there and whimper and take the shock. And uh, that would persist. The dog would never try to escape the shock uh, again. So uh, the the dogs could even see dogs in the the other group that uh, were the control group that were allowed to escape the shock. They could see them do that, uh, but they still wouldn't try. So he, he designated this as learned helplessness, that the dog has lost hope that he can uh, escape the the terribly adverse circumstances. Well, something like that happens to doctors. You know, you can only go to administration so many times saying, uh, I need this for my patient and and then have it turned down. Or you can only uh, spend so many hours, you know, trying to streamline your notes only to have someone from your compliance committee come back and say, You didn't document this enough to secure the appropriate DRGs for our bill. Go back and do it again. You know, so uh, these kind of things, eventually the doctor just kind of rolls over and whimpers and accepts it. You know, so this is a situation that uh, we see quite commonly. Now, there are ways out of it. And uh, Dr. Seligman uh, actually is the father of what's now known as positive psychology. And he has spent his career now developing approaches for healing people who suffer from this particular type of psychological trauma. Uh, He's developed a whole field of this and there are a few places around the country that are implementing his ideas uh, and they're having great success. And, And some of them are actually quite simple we may have time later to talk about those, uh, but for very little expense it's possible to make significant changes in these overall environments. Now, uh, as long as we're talking about horrific things that people did to animals, I'll, I'll refer to this, this study that came out of the '60s from uh, a Dr. Richter. And this was actually uh, very interesting and uh, a cause for hope. But what he did was he, he set up a system uh, where he had these tubes that he could put rats in and there were jets of water. that would squirt down on these, these poor animals and he would, would take a, a naive rat and put it in one of these tubes and uh, drop it. And what would happen on the average is the rat would swim and struggle and try to stay, stay keep his head above water. Uh, And they would do that for about 15 minutes on average. And then they would give up and sink and they would drown. But then he took some of these rats before they drowned at the last minute, he would rescue them. And uh, he would basically show them, okay, it is possible to endure and escape from this situation. And then when he would take the rats that he rescued and put them back in this, this situation, they would try for 60 hours to, to swim to escape because basically they saw that there was some possibility that they could escape the situation. So uh, I refer to this as learned hopefulness that even just tossing a, a little bit of hope to uh, to a doctor that there, there may be an improvement, just a little thing, just, uh, you know, concede that that doctor really does need this to help that patient, uh, then that can can make a, a huge difference. So uh, that's what I would refer to as, as learned hopefulness.
0: You know, I think it also applies to the patient. I was sitting there thinking about that as you are speaking. You know, the, having been to the age where, uh, believe me, everyone, if you haven't been there yet, as you get older, you will become more and more familiar with doctors, quite an array of doctors. But uh, there are those who kind of leave you bleakly and there are those who kind of lead you hopefully and uh, you know so much of the medical healing is psychological and your attitude Uh, i would submit i mean there's certain things of course we can't overcome but i can tell you as a if you if you if you with a physician who is the glass is half full rather than half empty it sure helps um um, I think with the learned helplessness and you can turn that into learned hopefulness because um, the medicine does perform some miraculous things. And a lot of it, once they've technically done it, is up to you and your willpower and your attitude to, to, to recover from it. Um, I happen to know that personally, as you know, Steve. So um, I think it's um, also good, <laughs> good medicine for the patient as well as the physician. Um, And that's what leads me to my next question, which you know I've shared with you, is the ever-present, ever-necessary, but ever more impersonal hospitalist. Um, God bless that hospitalist. They do come each day. Uh, The first thing they do in my experience, uh, Steve, they go to the computer. (laughs) They don't come to me. They go to the computer and they look to see what the previous hospitalist had put in the computer during his 12-hour watch on me. And uh, then he takes that and comes back and sits down. But he doesn't know me, you know. And he sits down, and he rather dryly and clinically and quite professionally says this, that, and one thing, another, and then goes away. (laughs) And you don't ever see your own physician make any hospital calls anymore. Uh, And just to see the smiling face of the guy who knows you Walk into your room, even though he may not be the one who's technically taking care of you, is a tremendous uplift. I, I, I regret the loss of that, Steve. I think I'm, it's gone, pretty much, is it not, sir?
1: <clears throat> it's, it's not efficient for the corporations. And so that's <laughs> why we see so little of it. But, uh, yes, it, that's part of being a healer, you know, is, is to, to get to know the patient and uh you're right the the hospitalists are great people and and a lot of doctors you know really rely on them to take good care of their their patients in the hospitals uh i'm too much of a control freak i i never really got the the hang of using hospitalists uh i i, I welcome them because you know uh i might know a lot about brain surgery and spine surgery but you know uh there's a lot about medicine that I don't know. And a lot of patients that I treated through the years were very sick and had a lot of other issues that needed management, you know, in addition to whatever neurosurgery they needed. So I, I always welcomed the input of, of the hospitalists, uh, but I, I never could really turn over the care of my patients to them. I always wanted to see them in the hospital uh, and uh most of the time they were, they were happy to see me, and uh, you just need that personal touch. It's, it's, it's part of what makes medicine an, an art and, uh, and not just a science and not just uh, a, a record-keeping industry. A long, long,
0: Steve, I'm sorry, Dr. Steve Reed here, a longtime friend and retired neurosurgeon here from our local hospital system graduated, I think, from the University of Florida Medical School, did you not, sir? I think I heard that. And um, and I've gone about uh, treating a lot of people in this community over the years. Got a phone line open if anybody has a call you want to put in. We've got a couple of minutes left here. Uh, We're back six minutes away from the end. I'm looking at the live chat. Um, And um, the uh, positive attitude is what we're talking about now and the the learned helplessness and hopelessness. Anything else that you're working on, Steve? That is, uh, you want to um, alert us to now. I know you've got all this active uh, energy and mind and training, and and um, uh, <laughs> do, do, you, do do retired physicians consult, or they just go away with their skills? How does that work?
1: Uh, well, some just fade away. Others take on <laughs> different projects. Yes, you know, some actually will move into different areas of, of practice. Uh, uh, a lot of the uh, Older surgeons, as, as they begin to get shaky hands or blurry eyes, you know, will uh, take on kind of mentorship roles or to uh, become more administrative in their, in their practices. Uh, many, you know, like in any other walk of life, you know, once they, they leave the profession, they, they never want to see another patient or talk to anybody else about, you know, their illnesses. Uh, so it, it's, it's a wide spectrum there. Uh, it's uh I'm enjoying retirement. I I really love being away from the electronic medical records. uh, And and I like to feel that we're making a difference in in maybe helping to save somebody's life in in the future. Uh, I I started this uh, company called uh, Dr. Lifeline. And uh, we're a 501c3 nonprofit corporation uh, here in the state of Florida. That means any donations are tax deductible. And our sole mission is uh, to prevent doctor suicides. Uh, So uh, that's something that has been very rewarding for me, Uh, been a very educational process to to, to learn about uh, what drove so many of my colleagues uh, to make that decision.
0: Well, it certainly is something that um, needs to be addressed in some sort of professional way. And I'm sure you can do that. You had an interesting statistic up there, and I've i not been able to shake it. More women uh, take their lives than men. Have you looked into that? What that's all about?
1: There are a lot of reasons for that, you know. That that go. Uh, there, there there still are some biases uh, in 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 the profession. You know, some specialties are worse than others. Uh, women tend to want to be more personal with their patients. They want to establish uh, longer conversations. They, they, they tend to become more emotionally connected to their patients. And I, I think that they feel the, bureaucratra- the, bureaucratra- the bureaucratization, let me say that, bureaucratization of, of medicine uh, more deeply than, than their, their male counterparts in general. Uh, and, and, you know, with the traditional uh, demands of uh, raising children and so forth, there, there are a lot of pressures on, uh, on the female doctors. Uh, and I, I think that they may many times even be more reluctant than their male counterparts in, in, in seeking uh, professional help.
0: Well, I can tell you that the guys I know who are the surgeons and like yourself and all, uh, I'm speaking, I know they're female surgeons, but the male surgeons, the guys who are, the cardiovascular guys, the neuro guys, all these things, man, have they got stamina. I, I just, I've just never seen such a tough group of people uh, able to, and you talked one time about working, how many hours did you, on duty, so to speak, at work, and <laughs> and this to me is the war horse about the, the world, you know,
1: the, the longest continuous time I had to remain awake was 72 hours. And uh, I can tell you that at the end of that time, I was hallucinating. I was making the loosest possible connections between my thoughts and sensory input from the world. There's no way I would have wanted to be a, a patient under my hair uh, after that length of time. Uh, How
0: did it come about?
1: Well, in, in, the, in the good old days when men were men and women were women and giants walked the halls, uh, there were no limits on the amount of time that residents uh, could, could work, you know, and we had to be on, on call for very lengthy periods. Uh, sometimes we got lucky and were able to get some sleep and other times we couldn't. Uh, many of the call schedules that uh, doctors impose upon themselves may be for a period of a week at a time. So if a if a surgeon is on that type of call rotation, it's possible he could have to be up and working, you know, uh, s- several nights in a row. So it's uh, it, since then, uh, the committees for accreditation of residency programs have placed limits on the amounts of time that residents uh, can be on call or have to work. Uh, but they, uh, those limits do not extend to doctors in practice. So there's still a lot of doctors around mm-hmm. the country that are having these, that are working and, and you never do that, Expect that from an airline pilot, uh, or anybody else that's in, in a critical, uh, position of taking care of people, you know, but, uh, it, it's still the case for many doctors around the country. Well,
0: we've been talking with Dr. Steve Reed. It's been a fascinating discussion today and hopefully once in a while we'll have him back. He, um, is retired now and we will have this of course at wardscottfiles.com spotify apple podcast tune in all the numerous places in which it can be viewed uh 24 7 365 and uh certainly appreciate uh, you stopping by and chatting with us for some of uh, uh steve about the whole gamut that we're looking at in this ever-changing world of, of medical care and government to paying and the whole nine yards uh, Gone are the days when up in the Ozark Mountains, my uh, first doctor up there, and I was just a kid, would uh, uh, take a, a, a bushel of uh, apples for payment, and that would be the way, the way you got traded by the doctor. I,
1: I had a patient offer me a pig one time in, in payment, and I, I came home and talked to my wife about it, and she said, no way, you can't take that pig. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's about as good as we need to conclude with right now. I'll tell you, appreciate you very much. We'll be back tomorrow on the Ward Scott Files. Award Hog Command Center out.